Hey, this is Gabe Garcia Colombo. I'm the new host of the State of the Art podcast. For those of you who've never tuned in before, this is a podcast about the intersection of art and technology, something that's super important to me because I'm actually an artist who works with technology, and I also teach media arts as a professor. <laughs> so ever since I coded my first hypercard game back when I was like eight years old, I've been kind of obsessed with art and tech. Uh, on this podcast, I'm going to be interviewing artists who work with tech, uh, museum curators who are really you know, fascinated with how they preserve an old work of art made with technology, CEOs that are experimenting with new ways to create you know, maybe AI programs that bring people back from the dead, all sorts of different art and technology intersections. So thanks so much for tuning in, and we're going to have a different guest every week. I look forward to spending the time with you. Thanks. I'm super excited today to be joined by Alicia Eggert. Um, Alicia is an artist. She's an inter interdisciplinary artist whose work focuses on the relationship between language, image, and time. Uh, her work has been exhibited at notable institutions nationally and internationally, including the CAFA Art Museum in Beijing, Triennial Design Museum in Milan, the Corning Museum of Glass in New York, the Amsterdam Light Festival, and many more places. Uh, so thank you, Alicia, so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, so um, let's let's kind of jump right into it. Um, so, you know, often when people think about art and tech, um, they think about like AI, AR, projection mapping, all these things come to mind. But, you know, incorporation of technology in the, in the arts has been around for a really long time. Um, and you began using technology in your sculptures to explore time and incite wonder. Um, before we dive into like more of your current pieces, could you tell us a little bit about why time has been at the forefront of your earlier works and maybe how you use some uh, different uses of technology to explore time? Okay. Um, just jumping right into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think the reason I, um, I kind of tackle time as a theme a lot in my work is because um, I really feel like it's this kind of powerful but invisible force that defines our lives in so many ways. Um, it's, you know, it's the ultimate determination of our mortality. Um, and our lives feel really linear and finite, but we exist in this universe that seems in a lot of ways very cyclical and infinite. Um, so it's always really fascinated me for those reasons. And uh, I think also because I grew up in a really religious um, family. My father was a Pentecostal minister. And um, I was always really fascinated by the way ways that time was talked about and addressed in the church, which was, you know, our lives are really short, but then we have this potential to have an everlasting life or to live for eternity in heaven after we die, if we check the right boxes. Um, mm. And that always seemed really strange to me. I could never quite wrap my head around it. Um, so, and even just the idea of eternity itself um, versus the now that we live in. So, um, I think that answers your one question, but I'm trying to remember <laughs> the other one. <laughs> yeah, well, let's, well, since you brought that up, let's go sort of on a tangent there. Um, you, you mentioned eternity, and you have an artwork called Eternity. Um, mm -hmm. Can you describe that work a little bit? Sure. Um, it was made in collaboration with another artist named Mike Fleming back in 2010. Um, so it was just a year after I finished graduate school, and I was really um, getting into kinetic sculptures and allowing uh, the work that I was making um, actually be physically affected by time and to change over time. Um, I'm always kind of like uh, fascinated by the way that as artists, we're expected to make these works that 
um, last forever mm. and use materials that won't change um, for posterity. But um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like this impossible feat. Like, we'll, it's never really, you know, possible. Right. Um, but I was thinking about the word eternity and um, thinking about what it actually means. And I do a lot of work that um, gives language physical forms. And so usually where I start is by thinking about a term or a phrase and then, you know, sometimes looking it up in the dictionary just as a place of kind of starting to think about the word and what it really means. And right. when I looked up eternity in the dictionary, I was really surprised that it didn't really mean what I thought it meant. And what I thought it meant was forever. But um, the dictionary definition said um, the state to which time does not apply or essentially timelessness. Um hmm. So uh, I was thinking a lot about how to take the function of time away from clocks as a way of allowing the word eternity to appear and disappear. Um, so my collaborator and I, um, essentially the sculpture is a giant piece of acrylic. It's three feet tall and eight feet wide. And it's a white piece of acrylic that's mounted to the wall. And to the back of the acrylic, we mounted... Um, 30 different clock movements, electric clock movements, so um, that only their hour and minute hands are visible on the front side of the acrylic. So it's just a series of black lines. And these lines are the hour and minute hands of clocks, but they're mounted on this acrylic piece. Correct. And, yeah. and so when we see it the first time, we're, we're seeing sort of like lines that are irregular or uh, is there a pattern to them? So um, when we first install the sculpture, we align the lines, uh, align the hands of the clock to spell the word eternity. Mm. Um, and then uh, the, the clocks are actually electric. Um, so they have power cords that hang down from the bottom of the piece of acrylic to the floor where there's a chain of power strips. And so one power strip is plugged into the next, is plugged into the next. And for the very last one, that's plugged into the wall. So when we turn that one on with, you know, a flip of a switch, all of the clock movements beginning begin spinning at the same time. Um, so when we first turn it on, you can see the word eternity, but it disappears pretty quickly, um, you know, in like three minutes or so. And then it doesn't appear again until the hour and minute hands of the clocks all come back to their original positions. And because of the hour hands, that doesn't actually happen until 12 hours later. Wow. So it's only, the word's only visible once every 12 hours for about five minutes. And then at every other time in that interim, um, it's kind of just an abstract line drawing. It's, it's super interesting. And I'll post a, um, a, a video of this work so people can check out what it looks like, because it's always hard when you're describing a work like this over the over a podcast, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. But we'll, we'll post a video of it. But I'm curious, you know, if you make a work that takes, you know, 12 hours, you have to wait 12 hours to see this final piece. How do you conceive of that in a gallery setting? Like when people are, when they don't see it spell eternity, do you have documentation of it, of it up next to it? Or is there a conceptual statement? I mean, you make conceptual work, right? Your work is very rooted in, in conceptual art. Um, but how do you rationalize that within yourself as an artist? Like that maybe there's an ex explanation necessary to fully understand the work. Mm. One person described 
described seeing eternity to me as um, seeing a rainbow. So <laughs> this idea that, you know, at any point you might walk into the gallery and you can appreciate it for what it looks like at that moment, which is this abstract line drawing. Um, but you might walk in at that perfect moment where you actually get to see the word appear and disappear before your eyes, which I really loved that idea. Um, that something could exist but not always be visible and be this like extra special treat for certain people. But I usually work very closely with the curator of whatever institution I'm showing that sculpture um, at to decide, um, first of all, when the word appears. So we can um, determine, you know, when eternity will show up based on when we turn it on to begin with. So um, we always make sure that there's at least one time, and since it appears twice per day, there's always at least one time where it'll be visible during open gallery hours. Oh, nice. I love um, the idea of art being like seeing a rainbow. <laughs> I've never <laughs> articulated that. It's a perfect description of conceptual art in a way. <laughs> that yeah, you happen I to, so too. You happen to I be there I at that time. It's, <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, you definitely... Your earlier work seems like you were, not, I don't know if obsessed with time is the right word, but you're definitely fascinated by time. Um, do you, is time still something that you kind of like worry about or make artwork about today? Or is that more of, a, you know, an obsession or a, a movement that you had early on while making this work? It's definitely something that continues to persist in my work. Um, I, I don't know that I'll ever get away from it. I think I'll always be obsessed with it. Um, <laughs> Why it is that? Like, what is It defines and structures our life in so many ways. And it continues to change the way we perceive it, you know. Um, uh, it changes over my lifetime, um, the way in my own relationship to time, especially since recently I had, you know, a child. Mm -hmm. So it totally changes with that. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 you know, one of those things that I can never stop thinking about and making art about. Yeah. Is time, is time moving faster for you now or slower or is it more of a variable speed? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I think definitely, I think most of us can relate to the idea of time moving faster as we age. Mm -hmm. Um, but what's interesting about having a child and being a parent is that, um, my time is always in my experience of time is always in contrast to my son's experience of time. And I get to see how he experiences time and kind of remember that for myself. Um, but Mm -hmm. it's also, you know, my, um, the way that I have to structure my time is right. also very different. And I feel like I'm um, I'm way better at like use, making the most of the time that I'm given to get certain things done. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, also it's interesting because um, I think that point comes across in another work of yours, uh, Pulse Machine, where you're really looking at how much time we have left. Could you describe a little bit of how this, this piece works? Yes. So uh, a lot of my work, um, as you'll discover, is made in collaboration with other people. And this sculpture was made in collaboration with an artist named Alexander Rebin. And um, it started with the idea of trying to make a sculpture that has a human lifespan um, as a way of giving like physical form to the number of seconds that we have in our lives Mm -hmm. and the way 
that, you know, there is this ultimate, there's this initial beginning and ultimate ending, um, and allowing to count that down in a way in the gallery in front of people's eyes. So, um, Alexander came out of MIT media lab. So he had training as an engineer and, um, was, um, you know, much more of an expert when it came to like electrical and, um, programming Mm -hmm. part of the sculpture. Um, and so, uh, I guess the physical form that it takes is a counter that hangs on the wall. It's, um, it's this long, narrow counter that has, um, flip digit numerals. Mm -hmm. So the kind of numerals that you used to see on old, like scoreboards, um, or maybe even you know, train stations or something. Yeah, Um, I think they had one at like, you know, Grand Central Station for a long time before they switched over to digital. Right. And they're so cool. I really love them because they have these little flaps that flip in and out to make um, to make the numerals with just, you know, white lines, um, sort of like a digital clock. But if you can imagine a physical version of the way that those individual segments of lines appear and disappear, it's about flipping in and out these little flaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, the counter is made of a series of those flip digit numerals and it's connected to a bass drum that sits on the floor nearby and the bass drum has a solenoid that allows the drum to um, uh, beat automatically without a person stepping on the pedal. So it's like an invisible and, drummer, basically, right. in the gallery. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. And so the uh, the drum beats a, a pulse rhythm, so a bump, 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 bump. And then the counter on the wall... Uh, counts down the number of seconds. So uh, the very first time we showed this sculpture was in Nashville, Tennessee at an artist-run space called Coop Gallery that still exists, actually. It's really cool. And um, we decided, because of that, to give the sculpture the, the lifespan of someone who was born in Nashville, Tennessee that year. So we looked up some t- statistics and kind of averaged male and female statistics together and then came up with this um, number of seconds in the lifespan, which was about 72 years. Um, so the counter uh, displays that number of seconds and then it constantly ticks down and subtracts one of those seconds. So at the end of the sculpture's lifespan, um, it will display zero and then turn off. That is a very uplifting piece. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm just thinking about like, oh, how many seconds do I have left in my life? And if that is visible to me all the time, I guess that would make me probably live in a more exaggerated way, I think. I don't know. I'm always curious about that kind of thing. But it makes me think about that. I mean, this artwork really makes me think about life and death and um, just the idea of a light for uh, an artwork that's alive and has a lifespan. Yeah. And so it has a battery operated um, internal clock so that it um, keeps track of time even when it's not plugged into the wall. Um, So every time you plug it in, um, the the flip digit numerals go through this series of patterns and then to, you know, determine how much time has passed since the last time it was on. And then it displays that updated number of seconds. But yeah, what's really fun for me as an artist, as a conceptual artist, kind of getting back to another question that you asked, Mm -hmm. is that, you know, my work always starts with an idea, but that idea always opens up this all these Pandora's boxes that I never would have expected, you know? Um, And 
the that pulse machine piece, you know, kind of brought to light all of these issues around, um, you know, access to healthcare and other reasons why certain cities have um, the the citizens in certain cities have longer lifespans or life expectancies than mm-hmm. in other cities. Um, so it was, you know, it was fascinating that way. And for, for other reasons, I I think I always think about how that piece will outlive me and Alex. Um, and so someone's going to have to take care of it after I'm I'm dead. (laughs) How do you feel about that? I mean, you, you know, is that something you're going to leave to your children to do? Like, are you going to leave your children as the custodians of your artwork? Are you, (laughs) have you thought about it that way? Do you want it to be like a collector? Is it that personal? That's a really good question. I haven't actually thought about it too much. I hesitate to leave it um, uh, as a responsibility to my son, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I don't think I would want to, him to have to take on that responsibility or to be, you know, the the person who's in charge of all my work after I'm gone. But yeah, I don't know. I, I would hope that eventually, you know, maybe the work would get picked up by an institution or a collector that would take on that responsibility. So it seems like we've somehow in about 15 minutes touched on life and death. Um, <laughs> but I wonder if that, you know, bringing this back to what you said earlier, that you were raised um, religious, uh, you were raised Pentecostal, right? Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that religion uh, influenced your work? I mean, I know you gave a TED talk um, in 2013 called Making Art is Like Speaking in Tongues. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that for the listeners of this podcast. Um, how is art making <laughs> like like speaking in tongues? <laughs> Uh, good question. I don't remember exactly what I said in that talk. That's, that's but... <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, speaking in tongues is such a fascinating thing. So, so yeah, I grew up in a Pentecostal church where there were no snakes or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but people did um, speak in tongues and the church believes that it's this gift from God that you can receive. And it's a kind of heavenly language that you use in prayer in a personal way, but it's also something that sometimes people speak out loud in church and it sounds like gibberish. And then usually there has to be someone who God gives a message to that becomes the interpretation of that message Mm -hmm. of that tongues message. So yeah, the whole thing is really fascinating, especially, um, to, you know, diverge a little bit, uh, in the Bible, it talks about how like the Pentecost happened um, as a way of giving the disciples the ability to speak languages they didn't know so they could communicate like the message of Jesus to other parts of the world, even if they didn't speak the same language as mm. the people in that area. Um so this idea of speaking a language that you don't know is really fascinating to me. And this idea that, you know, you could hear a message or a message would be kind of um, received and then interpreted in different ways. Um, And then also the kind of like mysticism around that, because I think there's so much mysticism around being an artist in general. And, um, you know, where I have so many people always ask me, like, where do your ideas come from? Mm -hmm. You know, and so much of my grad school experience was about like, where do my ideas come from? (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) Well, I think a lot of people are, you know, very curious about that because it's just you see these works. I mean, like I've seen even your pulse machine piece, it's like to envision a life as a drum. 
a drum beat, right? You know, we hear a heartbeat as a drum beat, but then to actually physicalize that drum and have this countdown clock, like that is, you're making a, a leap there. That's really interesting that a lot of people might not make in their own minds, you know? Um, and also, you know, you're talking about speaking in tongues and so much of your work is about language and the representation of language. We haven't really touched on that yet, but, um, you know, you, you work with text a lot and I'm wondering if that's related to the idea of speaking in tongues. You're, you as an artist in some ways are giving us ideas in these ways that we can't necessarily perceive at first. It's like the rainbow that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. <laughs> but maybe if we, if we think about the way these ideas are coming through, they start to make sense after a while and we understand your concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, how do you use language like in your own artwork? Well, now that I'm thinking about it and talking to you, I'm realizing that language itself is a technology, you know, in Mm -hmm. a way. Um, There's a really good book called The Information by James Glick that I love Mm -hmm. that was really inspiring to me a couple years ago. And um, it talks about, you know, eventually he gets to computers and how we invented computers to um, send information. But the very beginnings of ways that we would send information across long distances were like in different parts of Africa where there would be drumming across distances and you could hear drumming and that drumming and the patterns of it would somehow communicate a message. Um, So there are so many different ways of like communicating. And ultimately, that's what I do as a conceptual artist is try to communicate an idea. Um, But the way that I work with language is often in like a playful way where it either appears or disappears or um, different words. um, When I do neon signs, um, different words flash on and off um, in different ways. So it's very playful. Um, but it allows for the the message that's communicated to be um, open to interpretation. I guess getting back to that speaking in tongues mm-hmm. thing is that um, there's usually like one way to read it at first and then there's another way to read it. And then the person receiving it can really determine on an individual level what it means to them. Yeah, you have a giant neons piece that says it's called this present moment. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, what is the text that's involved in that piece? Could you t- tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Yeah, that's actually um, my most recent neon artwork. And um, it says this present moment used to be the unimaginable future. And then uh, some of the words turn off and it says this moment used to be the future. And then it turns off completely kind of as a moment of rest. And then it cycles back from the beginning again. And those words actually um are not mine. Those are um, by one of my heroes, Stuart Brand. Mm -hmm. So he actually wrote that quote um, in his book, The Clock of the Long Now, which is really great. And, um, you know, he's one of the founders of the Long Now Foundation, which I love and I'm a member of. Could you tell (laughs) us a little bit about that foundation for those of you who don't know about it? Sure. So um, it was started as a way to encourage people to think in longer terms, or I guess strategize ways of encouraging society to think in longer terms. And I think the the hope is that if we can somehow think in longer terms outside of our own lifespans or outside of today, um, then maybe we would make different kinds of decisions, um, not just for ourselves, but for our society or for our planet. Um, so one of their um, one of their things that they do is they always add a zero um, in front of the year. So it's zero two thousand and nineteen. Um, 
as a way of like making people think that there's eventually going to be a 3000 or a 4000 mm. there, you know? Um, but they're also working on making, um, a 10,000 year clock that would be a mechanical clock and somehow keep track of time and display time in, a, in the kind of larger term of 10,000 years, because most of our clocks are just 12 hours. So that, so think having a clock that displays a much longer expanse of time would somehow help us think in a bigger, you know, bigger picture. So in some ways, your text pieces are very related to your clock pieces as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though maybe we might not be aware of that at, at first. I mean, the, the idea that this present moment used to be the unimaginable future is not <laughs> that different than the eternity piece, right? Where we have to wait these 12 hours to see it. Although you're sort of forecasting, you know, even further into the future in some way. Yeah. yeah and I, I, I mean, the future is one second from now or a thousand years from now. So it just depends on, you know, how you're thinking about it in the moment. <laughs> and you, you you ask people to be in the moment a lot with your work. I've noticed too. Um, you have a piece called "You Are Magic," um, mm-hmm. and that piece it actually encourages people to hold hands <laughs> to see one of these sentences. Right? Can you explain right. how that works? Sure. So that piece really came from um, trying to find a way where my viewers can collaborate. Um, with each other in order to bring something to life, bring an artwork to life or into existence because collaboration is so important to me and my own process. I'm always working, um, you know, in collaboration with other artists or fabricators or, you know, neon benders. I don't, there's no way I could do everything that I do on my own. Mm And um, it's really magical and fun for me. And so I wanted to create an opportunity for other people to have that same kind of experience. So um, You Are Magic was originally created for um, something in Arlington, Virginia, just outside of D.C. called the Arlington Art Truck. And a curator there named Cynthia Cynthia Connolly um, came up with this idea of getting a sprinter van that will drive around the city and unpack public art projects in different places for just short periods of time. So thinking about the way a public artwork could exist for just a couple hours instead of, you know, the typical bronze sculpture lasting quote unquote forever. Right. Um, so I thought the best thing to be able to unpack and pack back up pretty quickly was a big inflatable sculpture And so I started thinking about different things the inflatable sculpture could say um, and thinking about um, the kind of magic of collaboration I was just talking about. So um, ultimately, the way the sculpture works is that there are two pedestals on a platform, kind of like a stage. Um, And the pedestals are far enough apart on the platform that one person can't touch both of them on their own. But they have these uh, aluminum handprints on the top that are actually sensors. And one of the handprints emits a small, small electrical current, about two volts. And then the other handprint on the other pedestal um, is the ground. And so if two people come up to the platform or three or more, as many as 21 people I've seen do it in wow. a chain. Um, but if one person touches the one handprint and another person touches the other, and then they touch hands in the middle 
they, with their bodies, the electrical current flows through their held hands and completes that circuit. And then there's a radio transmitter inside the platform that sends a signal to the inflatable to turn on. So at first, the inflatable is literally just like a crumpled pile of fabric <laughs> on the ground. Not magical. <laughs> Not magical. And then um, as soon as people touch hands in the middle, it turns on and it starts to inflate. And then the longer they hold hands, the larger it becomes, eventually expanding into the words, you are magic. <laughs> and what kind of reactions do you have from people when they see this giant? I mean, this thing is big, right? It's, it's really <laughs> big. Yeah. It's, um, I think it's 24 feet wide and 12 feet tall. So yeah. And and then the platform is pretty close to it. So when it blows up, you feel like it's kind of blowing up in front of you like a big monster. So it's this experience of uh, wonder, right? This like almost childlike wonder of a huge inflatable text appearing in front of you that's kind of celebrating the viewer, right? I, I mean, that's how right. it, it sort of looks to me. It's like, oh, I, we are magic together. We've made this connection. And now we're we're magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And um, yeah, people definitely get pretty giddy when they do it. And it's really fun too to see the different ways that people bridge that kind of physical and metaphorical divide of the platform, you know, um, and the way that they, any kind of connection of skin will make the electrical circuit complete. So people sometimes touch fingers or like, you know, make different shapes with their bodies and create long chains of people. So it's, it's pretty fun to watch. It's, it's really great to see an artist that's working with um, technology and really trying to bring people together through technology. I mean, you know, today, especially we see so, so many cases of technology dividing people, uh, you know, and the U.S. is extremely divided right now, maybe more so than ever uh, in the past like 20 years, you know, and I'm, I'm just I think it's interesting that you're really using art to bring people both physically together, but also make us think about our relationships with each other. Um, I mean, like, how do you how do you encourage or nurture sort of a dialogue with people through art? I mean, I know that's what you're doing with all your works here, but there are certain pieces like I'm thinking almost of your piece, uh, The Future, um, which really has to do with data, but also about conflict. Um, could you describe a little bit of that piece and then maybe talk about how you're using art to maybe bring people together rather than divide people? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I believe that kind of physical and face-to-face um, encounter is so important. And that was definitely um, one of the things that inspired You Are Magic. But the future, um, yeah, that is kind of a very different piece. Um, it is uh, physically, it takes the form of a small billboard. So there is a white kind of sign, a billboard type sign that's held up by um, a steel structure similar to a billboard structure. But instead of being huge and towering, it's more kind of human scale. It's about, um, I think it's about 10 feet wide um, and about eight feet tall. And on the billboard, there are uh, 206 light bulbs. And the light bulbs, the way that they're laid out on the surface, um, spell the word future. Um, And the number 206 uh, is determined by the number of countries in the world. Um, And so each individual light bulb, if you go up to it and look closely at the base that it's screwed into is laser engraved with a country's name and the countries are um, laid out on the in the word in alphabetical order Um, and the idea for this piece was that the word future would use light bulbs 
to illuminate the state of peace around the world. So this is another one of those Pandora's box pieces because it started out as a really simple idea like, oh yeah, I could use light to illuminate the state of peace around the world by having one light bulb for each country and either the light bulb is on or off. And then all together we get this big picture of how bright the word future is. Um, and so this piece was actually made in collaboration with another artist named Safwat Salim. And um, uh, when we started talking about the really basic idea of it, it started, you know, basically exploding into all of these other questions like first of all how many countries are there in the world mm -hmm. um, because depending on which source you go to with that question you'll get very different answers um, there's you know 193 countries are members of the United Nations but then there are other countries who aren't that are still seen as other countries as countries um, and so, uh, you know, at first we decided, okay, we're going to be as liberal as possible in terms of deciding who gets to be a country and who doesn't. Um, but then the next question was, well, how do you define peace and how right. do you define which country is at peace and which country isn't? Because this is not obviously a very binary issue, you know? Right. And you can't like, do a <laughs> Google search to see if a country is at peace, right? <laughs> it's right. Not gonna... So yeah, that's actually how we started. And we, uh, we or maybe you can. Six countries, and we were like, okay, we'll start Googling each country to see what we can find, you know. Um, and there is a um, there is a uh, an organization that we relied on heavily um, called the Global Peace Index mm. that does an annual study about the state of peace of different countries, but they don't include as many countries as we included in our sign. So we tried to rely on them, but couldn't fully rely on them. Um, but eventually what it led to is a collaboration with another organization called Fine Acts. And they're an organization that focuses on how art can empower and encourage social change. So they took on this project because um, their founder, one of their founders, Yana, um, is a is a social and political activist. So she already had ties to a lot of human rights organizations and a strong interest in the human rights issues that the sign could potentially illuminate. So um, we ended up relying on more than just the Global Peace Index, but um, Freedom House and the Economic, uh, the Economist Intelligence Unit, um, and many other nonprofit organizations that do, you know, research about these issues. Um, but it's something that I still have a lot, like a really hard time even wrapping my own head around, even mm. though it's my artwork. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty standard for artists, I feel like. Uh, how do you, so this piece will change then as more countries, uh, well, this piece will change as more countries find peace, right? Or fall out of peace, I guess. Uh, so it's sort of a data, data visualization piece in the end. Right, exactly. So, um, so we find data, and um, while we don't necessarily display the reasons behind our on-off decisions, um, we keep a really detailed Google sheet, kind mm. of listing why we came to the on-off conclusion for each indiv individual country, and then anyone who wants access to that information can have it. Um, but ultimately we, it is a subjective decision. Someone has to decide is that light bulb on or off. Right. And, um, 
but the way I like to think about it is that, you know, even screwing the way that you have to screw a light bulb into a socket, um, it still represents a kind of spectrum, right? Like, um, there is a line drawn in the sand where if you screw it in far enough, it'll turn on, but there's that little bit of spectrum attached to it. Um, but yeah, the work is time-based in that every time it's exhibited, um, we, uh, fine acts goes back into all these different databases and updates, which light bulbs should be turned on or off. And then, um, uh, I guess as we continue exhibiting it into the future, we're going to potentially have to update the design um, depending on the number of countries because I think that's already changed since the last time we exhibited this sculpture. Wow. So yeah, it's really evolving and changing all the time. Mm-hmm. How, so do you, you know, I'm thinking about all of this and I'm thinking about your obsession with text, your obsession with time. In some ways, it seems to me like, you're a translator, <laughs> like you're looking at language and, and conveying very complex concepts through uh, sometimes very simple phrases and sometimes more complicated phrases like the future. The phrase is just the future. But within that, there's all this encoded data that we may mm. not even see from far away. Do you view yourself as sort of a translator? Like are all artists in some ways translators getting back to speaking in tongues, too, I guess. Right. Yeah, I think maybe I do agree with that statement that all artists, I mean, um, we're kind of like sponges, right? And we take in all this information and then we squeeze it out and in some kind of way that helps people get a new perspective on it. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, (laughs) it's, (laughs) I just love the way that language, um, like simple words, simple words like now or future have so many definitions, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's why I keep working with it because even though it's really straightforward and it's really important to me that my work is accessible to everyone on some level. And so I guess I'm lucky to grow up speaking my, you know, English as my first language and, the, the fact that so many countries around the world have adopted it um, and it's so universal now. So it's important for me that my work is accessible and that most people can understand a certain aspect of it at first glance. And I love the way that language is something that if you know how to read it, um, you almost can't not read it. Um, but then there are other kind of layers and definitions and meaning, meanings you can find if you start kind of digging deeper or spending more time with it. And and then, of course, there's context, right? So depending on where you display a certain word or a certain phrase, it can have a completely different meaning um, than, you know, somewhere else in the world, potentially. And what could you give me an example of that? Like, have you shown these pieces in other parts of the world? And has that elicited a different response? Sure. So, I mean, the easiest example from my work is um, a neon sign that says you are on an island and then the word on flashes on and off very rhythmically. So it also says you are you are an island. Um, So it kind of flips back and forth between those two statements. And um, that piece was originally created for an art festival in um, in Maine on Peaks Island called Sacred and Profane. So it was originally a very literal statement that, you know, in order to see the artwork, you actually had to take a ferry to that island. Hmm. <laughs> um, so you very much were on an island. But since then, um, it's traveled to other parts of the world. Um, 
It's been in Australia, which is, you know, a continent, but also, you know, we can kind of see how that continent is also an island. And then it's been to Malta, which is very much an island. And then it's been to the UK. And in the UK, it actually traveled around on the back of a flatbed truck um, as like a mobile sign, um, a gorilla sculpture in a way. Um, and then it's also been um, more recently in places that aren't necessarily geographical islands. So, for example, um, Washington, D.C., it was there for an exhibition I had um, in Arlington in 2013. So um, I think depending on where you see that sign, you start to think about islands in different ways as either geographical or political or ideological mm. Um, and then also, you know, it's about zooming out because the further you zoom out, the more you understand that, you know, the earth is an island and our solar system, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like so much of your work is about being interconnected with other people. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's just really beautiful the way you do that with with text, uh, with clocks, with hacking clocks um, <laughs> and then hacking technology, too. I mean, I think like the technology in your work is sort of the, the the paintbrush to create your work, right? Like you're not necessarily an artist who's, um, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, please. <laughs> but you're not, you're not an artist where the technology is necessarily the forefront of the work, but rather you're using it in new and creative ways. Like you're hacking apart clocks to spell words. You're working with neon and changing the meaning of text through flashing neon. You're working with uh, microcontrollers to inflate giant letters. So mm -hmm. that's what I really like about it. Have you when you when you work with a piece of technology, do you? Is is it ever driven by the technology or is it really like you come up with this concept and the technology is the backbone that helps to to produce the work of art? Technology for me is a tool um, and it's just one of many tools in my toolbox per mm -hmm. se. Um, and it's almost like I think of technology as a found object because mm. um, I'm definitely not inventing my own technology. I'm always using, um, like if you really look at what I'm doing, it's always like, oh, that's actually just a clock and a clock naturally spins. Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily like, you know, inventing a new form of technology. Um, so I kind of, you know, work with it as a found object and then tweak it as I need or just rely on it for doing what it does so easily already. Right. Even though that eventually the technology is going to outlive you in some of these pieces, which right. is terrifying and also fascinating. Yes, <laughs> um, exactly. So let's talk about a piece that has no technology whatsoever. And uh, you know, I'm going to bring up this piece because I just think it's so fantastic and strange, but it's mm -hmm. called My Lover's Lint. Oh my uh, God. Can you explain to us what My Lover's Lint is all about? Sure. So we're really going back in the archives here. <laughs> How could I not ask about this piece? <laughs> um, yeah, it's like all the way at the bottom of my website. You really did your research. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, uh, that was a piece that I made in graduate school. Um, and essentially what it is, is I used graphite, just a pencil to draw um, a series of boxes on the wall, kind of like a calendar. Um and it was inspired by um, a person I was dating at the time who I will not name because I think he was embarrassed by this at the time. I'm sure <laughs> he still would be if he knew I was still talking about it on a podcast. <laughs> 
Um, but I was dating someone at the time who had this amazing ability, this amazing belly button that created little balls of lint, like kind of large balls of lint, actually, every single day. So like, you know, we would both go our separate ways in the morning and have our work days. And then we would come back together at night. I would notice like his belly button had this ball of lint in it. And I found it so fascinating. I'm sure other people would find it a little bit repulsive, but I thought it was so fascinating and beautiful. I don't know like how (laughs) he managed, how his belly button was such a little maker. I don't know. It was crazy. But um, so, yeah, every day I would like pull the belly button uh, lint out of his belly button and uh, collect it, essentially. And I started thinking about how each little ball of lint was like a an accumulation of time in a way because it was, you know, it was representative of the fibers of the clothes he was wearing that day. And it was like his activities and motions of the day. So Um, so it really represented kind of like one day. Um, and so I would take it and pin it just using a straight pin to the individual boxes on this calendar on the wall. (laughs) (laughs) See, you can find wonder in any small place, including the belly button of someone. (laughs) That's great. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing. I'm, I'm, I apologize to him if he, uh, (laughs) is sensitive about his belly button, uh, lint, but you know, yeah, there's, that's when someone asks you how to get an idea as an artist. Just stare into the belly button of your lover, and then you'll find uh, all the inspiration you need. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Before we go, um, I want to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions. So this is a long state of the art tradition. Um, I'm going to ask you some very, very quick questions. And the best thing for you to do is just to come up with the, the first thing that pops into your mind. There's no judgment here whatsoever. I've been, you know, on the other side of this and I know what it's like. Um, so I'll ask you a couple and uh, just the first thing that clicks in, uh, go ahead and answer it. So the, okay, the, so the first good. one, all right, you get ready. Here we go. <laughs> the first one is if you could travel to any other period of time throughout history, uh, what would it be and why? Ooh. Oh, man. Um, that's a really good question. Um, would I still have to be human? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I guess not. No, it's up to you. Um. Yeah, because I guess I would love to see, you know, the first thing that popped in my head is like that moment when, you know, things, something around the Big Bang or like Mm. when things, when kind of, you know, species started evolving and existing or like coming out of the primordial ooze, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And why? Why is that interesting to you? I mean, it's pretty interesting just by its very mean. so hard to imagine, you know, and, you know, as someone who believes very strongly in science, I believe that it's real, or at least, you know, the theory of it is probably somewhat real and accurate, but it's, it's something that it's so difficult to wrap my head around, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, Um, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you want to experience that uh, sense of wonder again, (laughs) it makes a lot of sense. All right. Here's another one for you. What is your least favorite and most favorite word? Or words, oh, I should say. I think, well, most favorite is pretty easy because it comes up in my work over and over again. And it's the word now because mm-hmm. um, I love um, how both big and small it could be, you know, referring to such a small moment of time and then also like a large expanse of time, depending on the context you're using it in. Mm-hmm. 
Um, That's like when I tell someone I'm going to get something done now. That means a large expanse of time usually for me. <laughs> <laughs> but other people I realize have different rec- uh, ideas of the <laughs> the phrase. Right. Um, and then I guess least favorite word. That's hard. Um, I guess I hate the word hate mm-hmm. or like another one that comes to mind is nice things that either mean things that I don't agree with or, you know, mean essentially nothing. Right. Like if someone says, oh, that person's so nice. (laughs) What does it mean? Uh, Great. Well, thank you so much, Alicia, for um, being with us today. Is there there a place that people can find your work in general? Sure. Um, So my, you mean like website? Yeah, just, yeah, website would be great. Okay. So yeah, my website is my name, aliciaegert.com. And then um, I'm a place in the universe on Instagram. Great. Yeah, we'll definitely link to that, too, in the description of the podcast and also on Instagram. Um, okay. And do you have any shows coming up that you'd like to promote as well? Or um, should we just put those also in the in the bio page? Um, I guess I have a current exhibition up at the University of Texas in, at Arlington, uh, outside of Dallas. And I have another big project happening in Houston soon um, at a place called The Color Factory. Oh, amazing. When is that coming up? that's going to open up sometime this fall, pretty much uh, any day. Cool. And is that going to be the piece that we spoke about? Is it the uh, Your Magic piece or is that already? Yes. Oh, yes. great. So it'll be a light installation version of You Are Magic. So instead of an inflatable blowing up, it'll be lights and color and music that turns on. Amazing. Well, thanks again. It's been really great to talk to you. Uh, thank you so much. It's been so fun. Thanks so much for listening today. Uh, This is Gabe Barcia-Colombo for the State of the Art podcast. Uh, State of the Art is actually created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, We have a great, fantastic producer named Vanessa Wilson. uh, And our audio specialist slash miracle waveform master is Weston Stevens. Uh, So stay tuned for next week. Uh, We're going to have another amazing guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is quite yet, but I promise it will be worth it.